morning. Please open your Bibles to John 17. John chapter 17. As you're finding your place there, let's, uh, let's all stand together again and we, we'll read this, this entire prayer again. Um, this morning we'll be focusing on verses 20 through 23, but I'd like to read the whole thing. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we pray once again for your help as we consider your word. We ask that you would help us to see these these things rightly, that we would see the heart of our Savior, that His heart would become ours, that His desires would become ours, and that as we have already sung this morning, that we would live out the reality that we are one in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Please be seated. When we pray... We typically do not pray such unified, beautiful prayers. We, we tend to pray things that are somewhat unrelated. Lord, please take away the dog's stomach bloat. Thank you for that promotion at work. Please do something about the neighbor's disregard of the noise ordinance. We, we, we piece together things that, that don't really go together. right? Just random things. That's... Not what's going on in John 17. There's a, there's a flow of thought that happens in John 17. This is not a random prayer list that we find Jesus just, just plowing through. But this prayer flows very naturally. All of these petitions are related to one another. First of all, Jesus prayed for His own glory, which was a prayer that God would complete the Gospel story, that Jesus would be crucified and raised and exalted to the right hand. And next Jesus said that we as His disciples had received that Gospel. So He prayed that the Father would keep us in His name. That, he would, that we would continue in the mission that He's given us. And now we find Jesus praying that in all of this we would be unified. Unified for the sake of our testimony to the world. So the, the Gospel saved us. It's placed a mission upon us, and it's essential to that mission that our lives make the gospel believable. That's why Jesus prays for unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ makes the gospel believable. It's possible that nothing will destroy the testimony of the church like division and broken relationships. Why is that? Because such a state denies the very gospel that we claim created the church. As, as we look at this petition in verses 20 through 23, we'll, we'll note a couple of broad truths that it teaches. And the first is that the gospel makes us one. It's, that's in your notes. The gospel makes us one. Look at verse 20 with me again. The Lord Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. It's clear Jesus is praying not just for the eleven who are in his presence, his physical presence, but he's praying for everyone who would be converted through their ministry of the word. And that includes everybody in this room. Is that fantastic or what? I, I just can't get over this. That you and I get to read a prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. Now, there's something in this petition that, has, that, that is happening 
That has also happened with the previous two petitions. Jesus prays something here. He prays that the Father would do something that Jesus Himself has already been doing. So if we think back to verse 11, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep them in His name. And then Jesus says, while I've been on the earth, I've already been keeping them in your name. Then we saw in verse 17, He prayed that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. In the surrounding verses, He says, I've been sanctifying them in the truth. The same thing is happening now in verses 20-23, through which is why there's so much repetition in these verses. The petition in verse 21 is, Father, make them one so that the world will believe that You sent Me. Verses 22 and 23, in a nutshell, is I've already worked so that the world is. I've already worked to make them one so that the world will believe that you sent me. Now, because of that overlap and repetition, we're not going to work phrase by phrase through all of these verses because we would be saying the same things several times. Rather, we're going to connect all of these truths logically and and consider them all at one time. All right. Now, what glory is Jesus talking about in verse 22 when He says, the glory that you've given to Me, I've given to them. It has to be something that He's already given to them because that's what He says. It makes most sense to understand that Jesus is referring to the message that the Father has given to Him. The revelation of the Father through the Son. Or we could just plant our our, our favorite word on it, which is the Gospel. He, He gave them the truth about Himself that would save them once He had died on the cross and been raised from the dead. And according to verse 22, He did that. He gave the Gospel to them, the truth about the Father through Himself. He gave that to them, among other reasons, so that they would be one. So that they would be unified. Jesus gave the Gospel to make us one. Okay, so we went down to verse 22 very quickly just so that you would see why I'm using the word gospel in our first point. But now let's go back up to verse 21. The Lord prays in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. But Jesus is praying here that the Father would cause the gospel to do its thing in us. And what is it that the gospel does? Two things. It makes us one with each other and one with the Father and the Son. Our our sin separates us from God, condemns us to hell, but by the atoning death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead three days later, we are reconciled to God and joined to the persons of the Godhead. All of that just astounding. I hope you never get used to that. But in reconciling us to the Father... And joining us to Christ as our head, the gospel also joins us to one another. Of course, these two aspects of of unity are repeated in verses 22 and 23. So we get that in verse 21. We get it again in verses 22 and 23. In verse 22, he says, again, that they may become one. That's our unity with one another. Then in verse 23, he says, I in them... And you in me, that's our unity with the Godhead. And even though the Spirit isn't mentioned in this passage, Jesus talks about the Spirit being in us back in chapter 14. So that's why I use the word Godhead. And then He returns to our unity with one another again in verse 23 when He says that they may become perfectly one. So the Gospel does both of these things. It makes us one with 
God and it makes us one with each other. There are two senses in, 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 uh, of unity there. And there are two senses in which it makes us one, okay? And, and the, the first of these is in your notes. The gospel makes us one. Now, now here's a $5 word, okay? Ontologically. Ontologically. O-N-T-O. Logically. O-N-T-O. Logically. That's, that's, that's my absolute favorite theology nerd word. Now if you don't want to spell ontologically, you could just write the words in actuality. Or in reality. In other words, the gospel joins us together in reality whether we feel like it's true or act like it's true. We actually are one in Christ. Ephesians 4.25b says, we are members of one another. When Paul uses that word member there in in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere in places like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, he means body part. He doesn't mean like church member, like a club member. He means body part. When the Holy Spirit was looking for the best metaphor to use to describe our profound connection to one another as believers, our fundamental unity, he, he, he decided to use body parts attached to the same body. We're connected to one another spiritually like a hand is to an arm or like a foot is to a shoulder. We're we're attached to the same body. We're all members of the same body with Christ as the head. We're united to one another ontologically, that is in reality, whether we feel like it, whether we act like it, just like the Father and the Son. Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The, the gospel creates the same kind of ontological unity among believers that exists between the members of the Godhead. Now, we don't live in harmony always the way that the Father and the Son do, but we are actually joined together just as surely as they are. Now, look around the room for just a second. Everybody do it. I know it's uncomfortable. Look around the room for a second. We've done this once before and I had some obstinate people that refused. Look around the room. You are more profoundly connected to the people in this room than you are to your unbelieving blood relatives. The blood of Christ has united us in spite of our different bloodlines, and has put us in one body for all eternity. You know, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. That will not end this unity. Our oneness is going to transcend this life and carry on into the next forever. You cannot say that about your natural bloodlines. But there's, there's another sense of unity. It's not just that we have this ontological unity. It's this real unity that exists whether we feel like it or act like it. But the gospel also enables us to be one experientially. That's in your notes as well. Experientially. It enables us to live like we're one. We actually are one all the time ontologically. 
But if you look at many churches, you, you, you might not get the idea that we actually are one because we don't live like it. Many churches are that way, and people may look at relationships in this church and think, uh, there's no way that these people are one. That's possible. We've, there are broken relationships in churches. There, there's disunity. There's unforgiveness. But the Gospel enables us to actually live like that ontological reality. And it does that by changing our character. We're, we're not only justified by Jesus Christ. That's, that is, we're not only declared righteous before God, but we are sanctified. He gives us the power to change. He, he gives us the power to repent when we've hurt one another. And, and to forgive others when they've hurt us. To overlook petty offenses and personal preferences for the sake of the unity of, of the whole body. And while I do believe that Jesus is praying for the gospel to accomplish that ontological unity, it also must be the case that Jesus is praying that we would live out that unity. It must be the case that Jesus is praying for experiential unity in this passage. Because how we live out our unity commends the gospel to the world. And that, that's the second point in your notes. How we live out that unity commends the gospel to the world. Now, why would I say that it must be the case that Jesus was praying for us to know experiential unity? How do we know that He's not just praying for ontological unity? Well, there are what we would call purpose clauses in verses 21 and 23. They tell us why Jesus wants us to be one. Look at the end of verse 21. He says, So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Now look at the end of verse 23. Says something very similar, but adds adds a little to it. He says, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So you see, Jesus wants the world to see something in us so that they will believe something about him and the Father. And that's the key. He wants the world to see something. That's why this prayer has to be for experiential unity. Because listen, can you walk into a room of people and see who is ontologically joined to one another by the Gospel? You cannot. That, 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 that real unity forged by the blood of Christ is a mysterious, unseen phenomenon. You cannot see those who are mutually joined to the body of Christ. But you can see people living out that reality. You can see them living in harmony with one another. You can see behavior. So it must be the case that it is experiential unity that Jesus wants us to exhibit so that the world will see it and believe something about Him and the Father. Now what is it that, the, that Jesus wants the world to believe about Him and the Father? He wants, first of all, for, for the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. And that's just a roundabout way of saying He wants them to believe the Gospel. He wants the world to see that the gospel is true. That the Father sent the Son to save and sanctify sinners. That's the first thing. He also wants the world to see that the Father loves the disciples just like He loves the Son. Now let's pause for just a second. This is too rich to just gloss over. Pause for a second to think about the fact that that's actually true. That Jesus, that the, that the Father loves us like He loves Jesus. Now it makes sense, perfect sense for the Father to love the Son the way that He does. They're both perfect in all of their attributes. 
They've enjoyed absolute harmony with one another for all eternity. I mean, what righteous heart wouldn't love and adore Jesus? Makes sense for the Father to love Jesus. But then in your mind, place next to this this perfect Lamb of God, place next to Him the totality of sinful humanity. Every last soul of which hates the Father and hates the Son with a rebellious passion. There's not a redeeming quality among them. But from eternity past, the Father chose to set His love on them. And and not a secondary love, not, not a junior varsity love, but the same infinitely intense love that He has for the Son. It's a love that is expressed in the Gospel by His sending His Son to spill His blood to ransom them from their own sin. And that sin's penalty. And that sin's power. That's a love that this world has never experienced. And Jesus wants the world to know that's what the Father's love is like and that He loves the disciples in that way. Now, why would our living in unity demonstrate those two things to the world? That that the Gospel is true and that the Father loves disciples like He loves the Son. How would our living in unity demonstrate that? Well, first of all, it demonstrates the Gospel because when we live in unity, we do something that can only be explained by the Gospel. Look around you at this world. You can even look at your own heart. We are, by nature, vindictive, unrepentant, unforgiving backbiters and gossips. That's what we do naturally. Just as surely as we breathe. So so when you see a group of people living in complete unity, perfectly one, as Jesus puts it in verse 23, repenting when they wrong one another, forgiving each other, laying aside preferences for the good of the whole, pursuing one mind, you can be sure something otherworldly has happened to those people. The Gospel has happened to those people. Because that's what the Gospel says happens to people when they believe the Gospel. Alright? Now, second, we demonstrate the Father's love, that the Father loves disciples as He loves Jesus. We demonstrate that when we live in unity with one another. Because we show that we have been brought experientially into something that formerly was only enjoyed by the Father and the Son. When we're made partakers of the joy of union with one another and with with the Godhead, it shows the Father must love us like He loves the Son because He has shared something with us that He formerly only shared with the Son. He has shared the greatest joy in existence with us. That is, union with the Son and with one another. the, The Gospel itself enables us to to live in unity, and it calls us to live in unity. It, it, it makes us one with one another, makes us one with the Godhead, empowering us in such a way that everyone watching must say, there's got to be something to this Gospel. Now, knowing just how essential our unity is to our Gospel witness, if we know that, What should be a major concern of ours? 
It should be the same concern exhibited in the prayer that Jesus prays here. That we would be one. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would please. Ephesians chapter 4. As many of you know, the first three chapters of Ephesians show Paul preaching the gospel, demonstrating what God has done in Christ to take sinners who hated him and loved and, and, and hated one another and transform them into saints who love him and one another. He makes that very clear in Ephesians 2. The gospel reconciles us to God and to one another, just like we're seeing in John, in John 17. Okay, but now look at, at, at Ephesians 4, 1. Paul then kind of turns the corner and says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And, and all he's saying here is, hey, now that you know the gospel, now that, now that we have teased this thing out, live in a manner that's consistent with the gospel. And here's what I have in mind, Paul says, beginning in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's it right there in verse 3. If we understand how important unity is to showing an accurate picture of, of the Gospel to the world, we should be zealous to maintain unity in the church. It, it should be at the top of our prayer list. It, we should be praying this right alongside the Lord Jesus. We maintain unity in a couple of ways that, that, that I find here in Ephesians chapter 4. And the first is we do it proactively by living with one another in humility, gentleness, and patience, and forbearance according to verse 2. That is, we, we promote unity on the front end by avoiding conflict and preferring one another. So we, we avoid conflict by growing in Christ's likeness. But a second way that we do it is reactively. That is by dealing with conflict that has occurred in godly ways. And, and we can find instruction on that right here in, in Ephesians 4 as well, toward the end of the chapter. Look with me at, beginning at verse 25. Ephesians 4.25 Paul writes, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We are members of one another. Now, stop right there. You see how he connects these two ideas to, to each other? Why should we deal with one another in this way? Why should we be honest in our conflict resolution? Because we're members of one another. We, we, we have ontological unity. We actually are joined to one another. So we should live like it. He begins this section of, of, of how to deal with conflict. With that reality, we actually are one. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, de deal with your conflicts in a timely manner. Don't, don't hold on to offenses and therefore open the door to, to the enemy. Letting things fester. Now jump down to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by tearing down with your words what Christ has built with His blood. Use your speech exclusively to build up the church. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another. So we, we, we maintain the unity of the church by doing it proactively. We're, we're, we're patient, gentle, kind, long-suffering as we avoid conflict by growing in Christ-likeness. And we maintain unity reactively by handling conflict in godly ways. We, we reconcile with one another. And we can find instruction on maintaining unity and reconciling relationships all over the New Testament. All the commands of the New Testament related to relationships are for the purpose of enabling us to live out the unity that we have in Christ. And that would include all of the passages that deal with confronting sin. You know, when we sin against one another, it causes a a break in fellowship. And we are instructed in numerous places, therefore, to have the boldness and love to confront one another so that that break in fellowship can be fixed. Luke 17, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Titus 3. So it's, it's, it's everywhere. And in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches that if, if we come to the altar with a gift for the Lord, and we know that our brother has something against us, leave the gift at the altar and go make things right with your brother. You see, reconciliation is so important that God doesn't want our worship until that's taken care of. Listen, don't, do not... Lie to yourself and think that you can enjoy the fullness of union with the Lord when there is a break in fellowship with another member of His body. Can't happen. As believers in the gospel, we are to be the shining example of how to deal with differences. How to repent. How to seek forgiveness. How to reconcile with others. The, the gospel enables us to live out our unity. So when we do that, we demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel. But, but conversely, when we don't live out that unity, we deny the gospel. We say with our lives, the gospel doesn't actually do what we say that it does. And that is why the New Testament takes such a harsh tone toward those who are divisive influences in the church. Division in the church harms our gospel witness. Here's how serious this is. In Matthew 18, there's there's a three-step process for dealing with someone in unrepentant sin. And and we're familiar with this. A three-step process for dealing with someone in unrepentant sin. But a divisive person someone who disrupts the unity of the church, is so dangerous that in Titus 3, Paul commands an abbreviated process for those kinds of people. Listen to Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Did you hear that? Warn them twice and then having nothing more to do with them. It's, it's not three steps, it's two. So let me, let me put this in just a, a little bit clearer perspective for you. If, if we're being biblical as a church, in terms of removing an unrepentant person from our fellowship, we will be more patient with someone who is engaged in adultery than we will with the person who is a divisive gossip. That's how serious this is. And here's how division often take pl- takes place. Person A and person B have a conflict. But they, they don't settle it biblically. That is, one or both of them don't apply biblical principles, don't look at their own hearts, don't repent and seek forgiveness, but they just get angry. One or both of them. And what's created there is a pride bomb in the middle of the church. And the absolute best case scenario is that the two of them just don't like each other anymore and no one else hears anything about it. The best case scenario is that that unresolved conflict will remain just between the two of them. But that best case scenario never happens. And the reason it never happens is because a heart that refuses to be humbled and repent and seek forgiveness or that refuses to be humbled and grant forgiveness is just the kind of heart that wants others to join in on their being offended. So, person A goes to talk to person C in the congregation. Many times under the guise of seeking counsel. Often, however, it isn't to seek counsel. It's, it's to vent, as we say. Venting, an activity for which there is no biblical justification. And, and if person C doesn't do the godly thing and shut that conversation down and send person A back to person B, person A will likely be emboldened and at least harbor bitterness, but possibly will continue talking and grow in bitterness. Person A will only ever give one side of the story. And there there are always multiple sides of the story. That's not conventional wisdom. That's Proverbs 18.17. And unless person C understands the principle of Proverbs 18.13 that only a shameful fool forms an opinion on the basis of one side of the story, person A's side of the story will become person C's opinion of actually what actually went down And in the absence of great self-control, person C will become another speaker in this chain and will tell yet someone else. Oftentimes, person B is doing the same thing on the other side. And the church is divided. And its testimony is ravaged. does, Does any of this sound familiar? I hope this is uncomfortable because it should be. It it should be intensely uncomfortable. It should be intolerable for us to knowingly allow unresolved issues to exist among us 
while being so brazen as to call ourselves the body of Christ. There, there are many things that Jesus could have prayed before going to the cross. He chose to pray that this, that disunity would not characterize His bride. Is there someone in this congregation? Maybe, maybe they're not in this service. Maybe, they're, maybe they go to the second service. Is there someone in this congregation with whom you have a broken or what you might call strained relationship? Maybe you completely avoid each other or maybe you're able to speak to one another. You're able to exchange pleasantries, but you do not have experiential oneness, the kind that Jesus describes in this prayer. Is there someone in this congregation that comes to mind immediately when I ask these questions? You know, you may immediately be coming to that, that person's mind too. This cannot be allowed to go on. You are members of one another. The gospel has made it so. And when you don't live like that's the case, you deny the gospel. You become just like the Cretans in Titus 1.16, claiming to know God, but denying Him by your works. Jesus said of the, of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. We show the same tendency in our own lives when we come here week after week and say amen to sermons and sing worship songs and shake hands with everyone around us, but refuse in our hearts to do what we know the Scriptures call us to do, and that is to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. Consider this text again. Jesus prays in verse 1, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may all be one. He says, you see, you see, it's not just that we demonstrate the gospel to the world when we are on good terms with people that we already like or with whom we have not yet butted heads with. The world can do that. The gospel changes us so that we are all one. And it does not demonstrate the gospel to the world for us to show some kind of phony surface level unity. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's what demonstrates the gospel. Loving one another and enjoying one another in unfettered fellowship. Here's what I would suggest. If if, if you know that there's someone like that, an unbroken relationship or strained, awkward, weird. There's something maybe in the past and you're not sure that it's been fixed. First, listen as the Lord prays for us in this text and join Him in this prayer. Pray the same thing. Ask Him, Lord, make it intolerable that we would work against You by living a life that is the opposite of the Gospel message. So Join the Lord in His prayer. Second, Do not come back here without talking to that person. Don't heap condemnation on yourself by honoring God with your mouth while refusing Him with your life and your heart. Go and make things right. Now perhaps you're not even sure if there is a strain between you and that person. Listen, all you have to do is is go to them or pick up the phone and say, are we we okay? Is... Is everything all right between us? I just want to make sure our relationship is okay. 
Maybe you're in a situation where you've tried and the other person doesn't want to reconcile. Don't assume that that's still the case. Especially if they're hearing this sermon too. Go to them again. Approach them again to make sure their heart is not softened. If they are still unwilling to reconcile, ask an elder to help mediate the situation. Oh, that we, that, 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 that we would not tolerate this among us. That we would love the gospel in such a way that this would be unthinkable to us. That, that God would give us such a passion for Jesus and a desire for the gospel to go forth that we would rather die than do anything that would harm His reputation or cause others to doubt the truthfulness of the gospel. There is great joy in unity. Great benefit to the body. I want to testify to it. It's no secret that, that I love Pastor Rick dearly. I've, I've talked about it numerous times. And, and I, I've mentioned recently that from the pulpit that in, in the past, Pastor Rick and I have hurt each other. All of that hurt was concentrated in the first few years of Providence Bible Fellowship. And those details will remain between he and I because we've, we've buried those details. But those, those early years were very difficult for us. Very difficult for us. We had a lot of conflict. And that, that almost universally is the case with church plants. In fact, they say that the typical church plant will not survive its first five years with all of its original core leaders still at the church. As I look back on that time, I, I know, I know that it could so easily be the case that this church's testimony would be much like the testimony of other churches of which I've been a part where pastors got sideways with one another and they did not reconcile and their names eventually became a bad taste in one another's mouths for the rest of their lives. They parted ways, never speaking to one another again. I lament that for them. And what a horror it would be as I think about this now the joy that I have serving at Providence with Pastor Rick, to think that it was so easy, it could have been so easy, it was so close, that right now it could be the case that the name Greg Birdwell would leave a bad taste in Pastor Rick's mouth. It could so easily have ended badly. And, and again, if you look at the statistics, it should have. And if you could have seen the black arrogance of my heart, during those months and years, you would have expected it to end badly. What a horror it would have been if it had happened. It just makes me sick to think of, of the joy that I would have missed had I not known these last number of years serving in unity with my fellow elders. It makes me sick to think of the disrepute that it would have brought upon the name of Christ had we parted ways. How, how is it that now, we are so close. I can't imagine being closer to a blood brother than I am to Rick Jones. I can't imagine loving a blood brother more than I love Rick Jones. 
How's that possible? Well, penultimately, this ultimately, penultimately, we, we obeyed and reconciled. Ultimately, it's because Jesus prayed that we would. He prayed that we would be one. I'm so glad that He did. So glad that He did for two reasons. That gospel-fueled reconciliation has forged a bond between us that has made me determined to serve the Lord alongside that man until one of us is called home. And second, there is no one on this planet claiming that the gospel can't be true because of what they've seen in our relationship. I praise God for that. Praise God for His grace in reconciling us together. Listen, that person that you're so upset with by God's grace, could end up being your closest friend. The Gospel does that. And and your reconciliation with that person could end up being your loudest testimony to the world that the Gospel is true. It's true. Please be a part of that story. Go to that person and fix this thing. Get alongside Jesus on your knees and pray this prayer. Adopt the Lord Jesus' heart as He prays. You can reconcile these relationships because Jesus has prayed that you would. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for the heart of Christ displayed in this prayer. We thank You that He demonstrates for us here what is, what is important. First of all, He demonstrates what's important, what should be important to us. But secondly, and most importantly, that we know that because Christ's prayers are dedicated to this, there can be nothing stopping believers from being reconciled if they will only repent and do that. Lord, we thank You for the reality that because of the shed blood of Jesus, we're joined to You and the Son. We're joined to one another. Would You give us the joy of being a shining demonstration of the Gospel by how we love and reconcile with one another all the time. We proclaim the Gospel. Lord, let us demonstrate it to be true by how we live with one another.
pray this alongside our Savior Jesus Christ and in His name. Amen.